Welcome to Fill to Flourish with Luke and Lauren, where emotional health takes a stage and your story matters. So welcome back, everyone, to our first recorded Fill to Flourish podcast video recording. So if you're listening to the audio and you want to check us out and check out our guest and watch it uh, through video, you can head on over to YouTube. We have a really special guest today, and we're excited to talk about um, two really important topics that we've wanted to bring to the podcast and just didn't, didn't know how. And then when we met Dr. Camden, we're like, ooh, she can help us have this conversation. Absolutely. So Dr. Camden Morganti is a licensed clinical psychologist and former college professor. She writes and speaks about relationships, sexuality, and faith, and is a regular contributor to Christians for Biblical Equality's blog, Mutuality. She's currently writing a book on the myths of purity culture, which is going to be awesome. Dr. Camden also provides coaching services for purity culture recovery, egalitarianism, and faith reconstruction. She lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, with her husband and their two little kiddos and their rescue dogs. So welcome to the podcast. We're so thrilled to finally sit down and chat with you. Yeah, thank you, Luke and Lauren. I appreciate you inviting me on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And we're so excited to have these conversations because they are important conversations with sexuality, like learning about healthy sexuality, what affects our, our sexuality. And it's just a <laughs> taboo topic in, in some ways to have a conversation that is productive and and healthy of uh, looking at what influences our sexuality what what influences so it's not a healthy sexuality what is healthy sexuality um so i'm really excited just to to have a conversation uh, with you and hear your input on on what we're going to talk about today which is uh, purity culture And if you don't know what purity culture is, Dr. Camden is going to tell us what it is. So why don't you just explain to us what is purity culture? Yeah, okay. So purity culture um, was a mostly religious movement in the late 1990s and early 2000s was when it kind of reached its peak. And it was a, a religious movement of just say no to sex and just wait to have sex when you're married. Um, And it was really focused on teenagers and especially teenage girls and included a lot of like cultural trappings and um, cultural artifacts, which is why it's called like a culture, because there were purity balls, purity rallies, there were true love weights pledges, there were rings. Um, I had one, you know, that that I wore um, that signified your your abstinence pledge that you had made. Um, and it also was showed up in a broader culture, not just in religious culture, because um, we had um, this emphasis in our, um, like our political culture for abstinence only education in schools and just really pushing that message um, as a reaction to AIDS in the 80s, you know, when, when that um, started reaching its height and then a rise in teenage pregnancy in the 90s. And so there was a, a broader political and cultural movement to, to really push abstinence. And unfortunately, it was not successful by their goals. Um, it really did not um, have the kind of effect that they wanted. It, it just left people without um, a proper sex education, I think, because we didn't get a comprehensive sex education school. We just got an abstinence-only education. And then it also 
left a lot of people who made those pledges, um, they didn't follow through with it, or if they did, they often saw that there were some negative repercussions that, that weren't expected. So, so that's what we, what I mean when we refer to purity culture. Yeah, that's a great, that's a Summarize. Yeah, quick synopsis. That's, that's really great. I, I guess, as you said, like the nineties, um, that's definitely when we were kind of in that culture and being bounced around like a pinball in it. <laughs> being affected by it. So yeah, it definitely seems like the, the broader culture had a, had a play involved too. And you wonder like with early education and even, you know, the 18th, let's see, the 1800s, 1900s, like what, what were families promoting? What were people telling their children? You know, there's so many questions with where, where culture morphed into this as like a this is now the the right thing to do this is now because I think it was always I'm, I'm getting stuck on when back then people wanted this for their families but it wasn't like such a cultural mm -hmm. um, novelty or I don't even know movement it wasn't like a movement, yeah. like a battle a battle for it mm. So I think that's probably a whole nother conversation of where that shift was of why it became a battle rather than maybe something that was just culturally accepted and why there's that shift of, mm -hmm. so that's probably another conversation. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't so much a question, it was just more like a, a realizing, I bet around uh -huh. that time is when it shifted to be more this movement versus mm -hmm. just this is as a society, you know, people get married, that's when they have kids. Like it was more societal norms versus like, this movement with propaganda and and yeah. like places conferences and conventions yeah. and rings and paraphernalia like it became this whole big thing even though culturally that had been kind of the norm um it's just it's just interesting as you said that time frame I was like huh that's mm -hmm. that was the climax of it yeah yeah I think yeah. it's interesting to look back over the decades and, and look at the history and see how there's different historical events that took place that led up to this. So the sexual revolution of the 70s kind of led up to it. And then I talked about um, AIDS in the 80s and then a rise in teen pregnancy, like all of those things, the rise of the religious right, like all of those things kind of combined to set the stage for purity culture and for this abstinence only movement. So yeah, like you said, this may have been a value that was just widely accepted and just kind of understood. There was a lot more stigma around unwed pregnancies or single parents um, before, like it was just kind of unheard of. It may be in the sixties or, or really, um, really shaming. Um, but then you had again, birth control coming out, the passing of Roe v. Wade, like just all these different um, bigger political and cultural events that happened that led up to this. Wow. Yeah, I wondered what role sexual revolution brought into this. Of, like, because before it was like, you don't have sex. And I was like, but sex is good. Like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it can't be. We can't say that. And so that, and that's where it comes with a battle, like the cultural battle of sex is good. No, it's not. Now we have to fight about it and we have to make a big scene over getting our point across of the dangers of the um, kind of fear enticing fear of if you yeah. do have sex then what happens and I think that that kind of leads us to our next question of like purity culture had a goal you kind of mentioned some of them of like uh reducing pregnancies and they didn't also didn't meet that goal in some ways so 
if you could just speak a little bit more about what was the goal of, of the purity culture movement, whether it's mm -hmm. political or religious. Um, and then uh, um, I'll follow up with that question. I'll just let you know what it, what, what it is, is what was the harm that purity culture created? It didn't meet its goals, but it also did achieve some other things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm one that thinks that many, um, not all, but many of the people involved with the purity culture movement probably had good intentions. And I think a lot of those intentions were um, some of these things like reducing STIs, reducing teen pregnancy, um, a big emphasis on the nuclear family and two parent households, and that that's what's best for children. And, um, you know, there's some research on that and, and different opinions on that. But I think that was what um, what the the broader goal was. And then religiously, I think it was this goal um, to call people back to traditional family values and traditional sexual values as a reaction to the sexual revolution. Like when this was a common and accepted value of abstinence, there was no need to have rallies about it. There was no need to have true love wave rings because it was just what everybody accepted. And there was shame and judgment if you didn't adhere to, to these values. But when the sexual revolution happened and that became less the norm, then now all of a sudden there's like this common enemy that we need to fight against. Um, and we need to have like, like you were saying, Lauren paraphernalia or artifacts to kind of represent these values now. So, um, so I think some of the intentions were good. Um, a, a desire to instill traditional biblical values about sex and marriage. Um, but some of the unintended or unanticipated consequences that I see in my practice as a therapist and as a coach is I see um, just a lot of effects on people's religious faith. So feeling like the promises of purity culture left, let us down. Um, I call them false promises, you know, feeling like they, they didn't happen. They didn't come true. So why am I believing that I should wait to have sex until, until I'm married if I'm not getting the promises that were told to me. So I see a lot of ramifications in people's faith development. And then I also see sexual problems, um, people experiencing sexual problems in their marriage because they did not have adequate sex education. They were not prepared. They did not have conversations with their significant other, you know, before getting married. And so they walk into marriage just thinking that everything's going to be great because that's what purity culture promised us. And then they, they find out otherwise, and that can leave them very disappointed and, and feeling like they were really, the rug was pulled out from under them. So those are some of the big ones I see. Yeah. And you mentioned this earlier, um, but just also what I hear, and I also see this in my, in our practice as well, a couple of things. One, the shame that comes if you didn't live up to the purity culture, you didn't mm -hmm. wait. Then there's shame of, of feeling bad, feeling like you don't belong, not making God happy. But it's also, like you said, the lack of education of within marriage, lack of uh, meeting expectations, and also not knowing what health, healthy sexuality is. Mm -hmm. And like, because of purity culture, the last one of the messages is like the messages of what healthy sexuality is for a guy, what healthy sexuality is for a girl, and being a stereotypical, broad like caricature stamp on onto to both genders, mm -hmm. and then going into marriage, maybe uh, not being able to, not that not matching, and that's confusing. Mm -hmm. And so there's shame for not fitting the stereotypical male or female sexuality. You know, like you said, though, also just not having education, so therefore not knowing how to even talk about sex mm -hmm. healthy sex healthy sexuality is just 
and them feeling like they did something wrong. Like you mentioned that mm-hmm. because yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. my experience that I, I did something wrong. But go ahead. Well, I think you mentioned two, um, two that we could come back to, which are shame. Um, I think that's, I call it the universal experience of purity culture, because it doesn't just affect people who had sex before marriage. It definitely affects that, that group, but it also affects people just even when they do wait, because they might get married and find that it's, it's not um, as pleasurable and, and enjoyable as they thought. And so then they have shame about what's wrong with me. Why am I, why am I like, you know, sexually broken or, um, or they don't fit gender stereotypes. That was the second thing you mentioned that we could come back to was just um, purity culture had these very rigid ideas about gender roles and gender stereotypes when it comes to sexuality, that all men are very sexual, that all women um, should meet men's sexual needs and a huge emphasis on modesty and how women dress, um, a huge emphasis on women like being there to serve men's sexual needs so men don't look outside of the marriage or don't turn to pornography or something like that. So yeah, so these these very rigid ideas about sexuality and gender, and when we don't conform to those, because maybe you have a marriage where the wife has the higher sex drive, or maybe you have a marriage where, you know, they just can't get on the same page sexually, and they're and they're not experiencing pleasure and enjoyment, then there's shame for that too. So yeah, so shame and and the gender stereotypes are two other harms that came out of this. Yeah, and you said something twice. I had a question, and I forgot it both times. <laughs> But maybe a, a third time will come up. And yeah, I'll remember it. <laughs> that's really interesting. The universal effect is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah the universal experience. Shame is the universal experience of purity culture, regardless of if you waited, if you didn't. Like even when you were saying that, I was thinking people who waited and then felt shame and dirtiness. Is that a word? <laughs> felt felt disgust at pursuing their sexuality once they're married and they just thought well it's like it'll be a switch you know I can't talk about it I can't I can't think about it I can't be a sexual creature until the night of my wedding and then the switch is on and I'm this vibrant sexual person and they were because that's not how humans work and then feel shame because they even like engaging in sexual uh interactions feels shameful right. so yeah wow that's that was actually so many ways what I kept on forgetting is that point wow. yeah we're like <laughs> that's why we work so well together <laughs> is that idea I've seen it also several times of thinking once you get married you're able to come sexually alive but because there's so much shame of stump uh like turning that sexuality off it's very hard to turn it to, to get it to come back alive and so yes. Mm-hmm. So the libido is off and they're just like, what's wrong with me? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just not sexually aroused or I have no libido. And a lot of times as my experience of helping people is a lot of times it's because there's a lot of shame of like that. I can't engage with that. If I can't engage with it, if I can't engage with something that's so vulnerable and so exposing because it's shameful, then I just, Anytime I try, I just feel shame because yeah. of the messages that are mixed with it. Um, there's actually, a, I work with a lot of, I work some of my clients, um, sex addiction, mm-hmm. and a great book is Unwanted. And it, mm-hmm. I see that crossing over into addiction, but also from purity culture. And the, the idea of unwanted is just my sexuality is, with their addiction, it's like sexuality is bad. And when it's, when it's religious and there's a sexual addiction, it's like, I'm bad. I'm 
I have to turn it off. And same with period culture, sexuality is bad. I can't engage with that. I have to turn it off. And so it's like unwanted. And so it's, that book's all about learning how to re-engage with healthy sexuality and not feel that shame. But yeah. yeah, it's all I have to say is, yeah, I see it. Thank you for helping me with that. Yes. Is that yeah, actually, to me back I call it the flip switch myth, just like you were describing, Lauren. You know, I, I call it the flip switch myth because it's, yeah, it's that myth that once you're married, you just, it's just as easy as flipping a switch. And then all of a sudden, what was called sinful or dirty or bad or shameful before marriage is now holy and pleasurable and enjoyable and mind blowing. Um, and so it's just, it's very hard for people to make that shift. And yeah, Luke, I know you're a mental health professional too. And um, in my therapy practice, I practice a lot of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is all about identifying um, negative thoughts that are limiting people and then replacing those with positive and more helpful and, um, and adaptive thinking. And I do a lot of that in my coaching work with purity culture recovery too, because people form these really negative beliefs and thoughts about sex based on all this purity culture messaging that they received. And we now know from all like the trauma research that's out there that it's hard to turn that off in your body. Even if your mind, you can make that mind shift of like, okay, intellectually, I know that this is like allowed now and that this is good, a good thing now. And I should be enjoying it. The body cannot make that change. And for some people, purity culture does present as um, some trauma in their body or some religious trauma in their body reacts in that way to it. So yeah, so a lot of my coaching work is helping people make the, the mind shift of like replacing those negative beliefs with like, what is the truth and looking for other sources of truth besides um, the dating books you read as a teen. That was a big one for me or the sermons that you heard or, you know, whatever focus on the family was saying and things like that. So, so making the shift from like those sources of truth to, um, to more accurate and uh, holistic sources of truth now, and then helping your body also to get aligned with that. So good. I love that. The flip switch myth. That's good. Do you kind of, we've touched on this already a little bit in a couple different ways um but like how does it affect marriage you've mentioned a little bit how you can't the flip switch myth but there's also some you also talked about the myth of like women having to serve men Mm -hmm. uh, and Mm -hmm. like meeting their sexual needs whereas they don't have any sexual needs because of the myth so there's that shame of not being able to turn it on but there's also the other aspect of the messages of sex is for men and not for women and women are kind of just there to serve men. And can you speak a little bit more about that with purity culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I call that one the gatekeepers myth, that mm-hmm. women are the gatekeepers for sexuality. So before marriage, they're the gatekeepers of the sexual boundaries, responsible for, they're the ones responsible for saying, no, we've gone too far. No, we shouldn't do this. Like constantly monitoring, like, you know, is this too much? Like, how does he feel? Is he getting too aroused? How am I feeling? You know, so they're constantly like spectating is what it's called, you know, constantly watching. And then that translates into marriage, always being in your head and not being able to be in your body during sex. Um, and that, that can cause a lot of problems for women as far as like just lack of sexual pleasure and difficulty having orgasm because you're so stuck in your head and constantly spectating or monitoring sexual interaction. So yeah, so they're responsible for, for the boundaries before marriage and then after marriage responsible for always being sexually available as a way to gatekeep men's sexuality and keep them um, from sexual sin, either outside of the marriage or through pornography or, or something like that. So 
yeah, so just a lot of those harmful effects because of the gender stereotypes too, and because of these false expectations of my wife is always going to be, you know, available to me sexually because I have had to wait so long. And so now I get my reward and I can have sex whenever I want to. That's kind of the message that men were told. And for women, it's like, well, sex is your duty. You know, it, it, it may not be as pleasurable for you, or you may not want it as much as your husband, but it's your duty and you have to provide sex for him whenever he wants it. And that just also gives women low sex drive because who wants to feel like it's just a duty or an obligation, you know, obligation sex is the term for that. So, um, so yeah, so that sets us up for problems in marriage too. That just made me think of the 72 hour club. Did you? Yeah. (laughs) The 72 hour rule that you have to have sex, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember being at like a mops or something. I don't know, some type of woman's event where they're like mm-hmm. talking about this new new idea and getting women to like sign again. It was like a re reenacting of the signing for the ring, for the purity culture ring. It was like, do you want to sign to be in the 72-hour club to make sure you're giving your husband sex every 72 hours? And I was so young and so unaware of these myths. And thankfully, we had worked already to get a really healthy sex life. So that didn't feel, that didn't feel oppressive to me. But I'm sure that that was the I was the minority in that situation because mm-hmm. um, it was a very strongly faith-based group. And we kind of went outside of the faith messaging about sex to develop a healthy sex life. Mm-hmm. It wasn't from within. Right. So mm-hmm. anyways, <laughs> I pictured like the branding of the 72-hour club and I just needed to get that off yeah. my chest. Wow. I didn't know that that was a club that you could join and sign up for. So, wow. And that presents so much pressure. Like I don't want to sign something that obligates me to have sex every 72 hours. It's like, are you looking at your watch? Like, oh no, it's been 71 hours. Like (laughs) I've got one hour left. Like (laughs) it's just so much pressure. And that's not sexy at all. Like that's not sexy to have some timeline or some, that's the spontaneity that, yeah terrible we veto we get yeah, rid of that I club just, i just like got a picture of like, like it's like a chore like yeah and i some of the people i work with it's like uh like the guy who maybe is upset because they're not having sex enough and just like trying to get trying to get them as a couple to understand like of course it's like you said who wants to be able to do obligatory sex it's like washing dishes like well it's it's time the dishes are there so i might as well go clean them mm-hmm. and that's just totally missing the whole like idea of sex and yeah and it's kind of it's confusing messages like sex is so amazing just wait surprise you get to wash the dishes again <laughs> <laughs> aren't you glad you waited yes <laughs> like of course there's a disappointment of course that switch doesn't flip um Mm -hmm. of course your body can't shift well it really misses the mark of a real like i don't know three-dimensional sexuality like a really full vision for sexuality you know Sheila Ray Gregoire is one of my, my favorites who yes. writes about this topic. I know y'all are fans too. And, and I've had, I've been able to collaborate with her a few times, which has been great. Um, and she talks about how sex is a deep knowing. It's not a using, it's a knowing. And that it should be three things, mutual, pleasurable, and intimate. 
Right. And so if we only have one of those things, we don't have the other two, then we're really missing out. And it's, it's really lacking what, um, you know, what a healthy sexuality could look like. And I talk about how sexuality, I don't like the terms give and take, like I'm, I'm giving him sex or, you know, I'm taking pleasure or something like that. I like the term sharing, like it's a mutual mm-hmm. sharing of our bodies and sharing of pleasure and sharing of intimacy and our time together and our hearts. Um, so the 72 hour club doesn't seem to fit that for me because it does seem like a give and take. It's like, oh, it's 72 hours. I've got to give him sex or, you know, it doesn't seem like a, just a real deep knowing and a real like pleasurable sharing of, of, of time together. Yeah. Can you say those three things again? Mm-hmm. Uh, mutual, pleasurable, and intimate. That's good. And actually, Sheila says that if 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 your sex with your spouse is not those three things, yeah. you well, you have no obligation, period, to have mm-hmm. sex with your spouse. But but her messaging is like, if it's not those three things, you do not need to consent. You, you, you do not need to take part in a sexual relationship that's not mutual, mm-hmm. pleasurable for you, and intimate. Mm-hmm. That those those things um, are where safety is developed. Yeah. That's where the the reciprocity is is. Mm-hmm. I like what you said, shared. Yeah. And that's just that's mind blowing to people. I think they think yeah. it's the obligation. It doesn't need to be pleasurable, especially for the female. There's no way I can get out of this we had a recent um person we interviewed guest (laughs) recent guest i was talking about love as pursue provide and protect Mm -hmm. yeah that was that was me and i I, as you have that um pleasure mutual and intimate like i think those feed each other like Mm -hmm. you have to love somebody is protecting pursuing providing if you're doing that then you can, the probably it's probably mutual, intimate, and uh, pleasurable. For both, yeah. And if you're not loving, if you're not protecting, providing, pursuing, you're probably missing one of those three as well. Right. Um, yeah. So I don't know if they they feed each other or if, or if they're just kind of inter, just three ways of saying the same thing. Yeah, if they're they're complementary. Yeah. To those concepts are complementary, and she was just saying like you can't have you can't have one without the other. Right. You can't have someone who provides for you but doesn't protect or pursue you. That's not love. And the same thing with or somebody that pursues you and protects you but doesn't provide for you. Right. Yeah. That 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 sexuality is the same thing. It can't just be, well, it's intimate because we're we're vulnerable and we're naked and this person's having pleasure, but it's not mutually pleasurable. Wait, no. I feel like those are really concise. I'm glad you brought those up. I like that. Me too. Well, we have to give Sheila credit for that. (laughs) Sheila's great. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see. How about singleness and sexuality? Mm-hmm. Um, let's explore that for a little bit. Yeah. Well, I, I'm so when I said that shame was a universal experience of pure, purity culture, whether you waited or not, or whether you're married or single, whether you're male or female. So I think single people carry some shame here too. Um, I know for me, like um, you, you may have heard me share some of my story that I didn't get married till I was almost 30. And I was single for most of my twenties, seeing all my friends around me get married. I, I live in the South, you know, and in a pretty conservative kind of area, I went to a Christian college where it was very common for people to get married at 21 or 22, right out of school. So for me being 30 was like old <laughs> and significant, <laughs> significant. Um, I know that's not, it's not that way in all circles or in all parts of right, the world. Right. But anyway, so I had a lot of shame about being single. Like, what's wrong with me that I can't find someone? Um, and there was also a sense of of pride, really ugly pride of like, 
I've done things the right way, you know, quote. And so where is my reward that purity culture promised me? Like, where is my spouse? And I call that the fairy tale myth of just like, where's my fairy tale spouse and, and, and marriage and happy, happy marriage, because I've, I've followed all the rules. So I think there, yeah, there can be shame and singleness. And then in the coaching that I do, some of the single clients I've worked with, I found that they just really have no concept of how to navigate dating in single life as an adult, especially once you start to get in your later twenties or thirties, which is kind of old in the, um, in the Christian uh, circles that, that people find themselves in, like in churches where it's very common again for people to get married young and start their families young. So they really don't know how to go about dating because purity culture just said like, you know, it really had an emphasis on not dating too. It kind of went hand in hand with the courtship culture of I kiss dating goodbye and, um, and just, you know, court instead of dating. So, so there isn't a blueprint for how to date past your your late teens, early twenties. And I know for me, I was promised, like, you're going to meet your spouse, like really young in life, as long as you follow the rules, like you're going to get married and just have a beautiful marriage. So yeah, being a single um, young adult in your late twenties, I was just like, I don't know how to do this, you know, because there's the world's blueprint of Tinder and, and, you know, how to date, but then like, there's not really a Christian blueprint provided. So I think that is something that's a really a struggle for the, the single people that I work with. Wow. Mm, yeah, I see that. And also, I haven't thought about this from a purity culture aspect, but the minimalization, like the minimalizing, minimizing like singles. Mm-hmm. I see this a lot in the work I, I was doing as I was working with overseas workers. There's a lot of single people and they weren't in leadership. They couldn't give counsel. And there's, there's different things. Like if you're married, it's kind of like the same thing. Like <laughs> if you get married, you get to have sex and you get to be in leadership and all of a sudden this wisdom comes over you and you can mm-hmm, give counsel mm-hmm. and- Even if you're still terrible. Yeah. <laughs> if you yeah. have the ring, you have this automatic goodness bestowed to you. But there's, so there's not just that dating and sexual shaming, but along the period culture is if you're not married, then you don't have, you can't have sex and you don't, you haven't arrived. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that probably comes from purity culture as well as- something comes with marriage, something special comes. If you don't have it and you don't have the wisdom to counsel, you don't have the experience to, to be in leadership over married couples because, well, you haven't had sex for one, so how could you help them? <laughs> I definitely felt like that as a single person. And um, I was in grad school in my 20s getting my doctorate and I um, had a concentration in couples and family work. And so I did a lot of couples therapy. That's what my dissertation was on. And so I would work with married couples in their forties and fifties. And they would look at me, you know, I was like 24, 25 and unmarried. And they're like, well, what do you know? How, how can you help us? You know? And, and I realize now, like there is some wisdom that comes with age and, ex- and life experience, of course, but, but I was focused on teaching them the therapy skills, you know, that I was being trained in and, and that could be helpful, even if I didn't have the life personal experience. So yeah, I definitely felt like I was kind of a second class citizen in the church as a single person that I didn't have as much to offer or wasn't taken as seriously as a leader or as a, you know, thriving contributor to the church body when I was single. So I I agree with you on that, Luke. And, um, and that leaves like, again, young adult singles, just feeling like, where's our, my place in the church? Like, um, I was, talking to um, somebody in their forties um, who is a single, never been married Christian. And they were just saying, it's hard to make friends because um, 
everybody's a, a, a mom, you know, all, all my group is a mom. And so they don't really have time for non-mom friends. Or like, if I make friends with a couple, they don't really want to spend time with me because there's this idea that since I'm single, I'm going to steal their husbands or something like that. And that definitely came from purity That's, culture. Yeah, for sure. From these gender stereotypes. Yeah. So, so I call it marriage culture and, and marriage is, is a good thing, a beautiful thing. And I, I, personally love, love being married, but this unhealthy marriage culture is this emphasis on you're, you're somehow more like mature or spiritually knowledgeable or wise because you're married um, or marriage is seen as like the pinnacle of, of Christian life and, and maturity, or even just, you know, adulthood, like you're an adult when you're married. I felt like I was treated like I wasn't quite an adult because I wasn't married, even though I was I had my doctorate and was, you know, uh, working and living on my own and just, yeah, being responsible. So, um, yeah. 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 I was just thinking, of, like, uh, you have your outside the church, you acknowledge you have a doctorate, you're live, you're responsible, paying bills, fully self sustaining human, and like, and, and beyond self sustaining. Right. But you can't really, but you're not married. So, yeah, it's marriage culture. fascinating that marriage culture. That's a good term. Words. Yeah. I love mm-hmm. all your terms you have. That's so <laughs> well, there, I wrote an article on my blog called Five Toxic Christian Cultures. And um, marriage culture was one of them, courtship culture, modesty culture, rape culture, and part patriarchal culture. Those were the, the five cultures. And I make a, uh, a point in there that purity culture kind of has elements of all of them. You know, they're all kind of related, but that patriarchal culture is the underlying one for all of them too, that there's elements of patriarchy in all of those cultures. So, um, yeah, so it was really interesting and it was a really popular article when I published it, I think last summer, because people could see like, oh, I can see the connections between all these. I can see how this modesty culture is related to purity culture, how patriarchy is underlying all of these. So it's really interesting to see those connections. It's good. We were just talking this afternoon uh, as we were preparing. I was like, in rape culture, I saw, I saw rape culture big time driven by purity culture mm-hmm. so, um, and that modesty culture. And mm-hmm. I think even you said at the beginning of where it, I think you said that religious right. Yeah, yeah. 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 The, the, the upcoming of the religious right, purity culture and modesty being part of the religious aspect coming into and driving that rape culture. I can see how that would, could, could be an influence and how yeah, sad that is. But also, of course, a patriarchy right there. It's, well, it's the woman's fault. I mean, if she didn't, mm-hmm. she didn't give me those messages I, and, and I just lost control of my ability to respect a human being, it's, yeah. it's, it's so yeah. harmful. Yes. The mindset. Or what was she wearing, which is modesty culture? You know, what was she wearing that, that caused the, the rape to happen, which is yeah. so, so false, so damaging. So and, false. Yeah. Well, that will be, it'll be exciting to explore the complementarianism and egalitarianism with you in the next episode. I'm just um, thinking that. Because then we can really dive into that patriarchal, <laughs> that, that yeah. underpinning. Um, but one last question while we wrap up this episode, just wondering if you have some direction to give people who feel like they would love to develop a healthier more robust sexuality that is grounded in their integrity, but is alive and reflective of their, their humanness. And um, yeah, if we could just talk about that, that'd be really neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when I, in my coaching, I talk to my clients about getting your head, heart and body aligned. 
And I think that's where it comes back to is a healthy sexuality is going to be when there's an integration between those three, um, that our head, hearts, and bodies are all aligned and that we're, we're living our sexuality from a place of integration and wholeness. Um, and so we talked some about that. The head part is the, your thinking is your beliefs. So really challenging those beliefs, take the time to identify what are some of the negative myths and messages that I've bought into where did those come from? Like I mentioned, did they come from a book? Did they come from a sermon? Did they come from sex ed class at school, my parents? And then like, what is the truth? Looking for the sources of truth. Like if I was told that sex is going to be amazing in marriage, what if I wait, what is the truth? The truth is that all couples can have sexual problems and sexual ups and downs, regardless of their sexual past, regardless of if you had sex or if you didn't. And that sex is a learned skill that takes work in marriage, um, regardless of your experience level too. So yeah, so replacing those those myths and messages with truth is the head part. The body part would be some of the things we talked about of like um, staying in your body during sex, like um, really tuning into your sense, your senses instead of being stuck in your mind and, and, and thinking all the time, because it, it really takes a little bit of a release and a let go of control to experience the most sexual pleasure. And so people who have trouble with letting go of that control and staying in their body seem to have the most difficulties with, with sexual pleasure. And so there's, there's various techniques and kind of skills that I work on with, with couples and coaching on that, on how to stay in your body. And then the heart piece would be your emotions. Um, the shame that, that Luke and I were talking about, what we see with, with our clients and things like that would, would be the heart, like looking at that shame. And um, again, where does that come from? And, and how can you differentiate between shame and guilt and, and respond in a healthy and adaptive way? And um, and how can you also hold space for your emotions and validate those emotions, um, knowing that they come from a valid place, even if they're they're not so helpful or rooted in truth. So, so those would be um, some of the ways to think about how can I have a healthy sexuality is think in terms of integration and getting those, the head, heart, and body aligned. And so succinct and great. And can you, what, what, do you have a blog that you, you mentioned? Yeah, we have. We'll, we'll put a link on it. Um, mm-hmm. Want to just say that real quick, what, what that sure. blog is? Yeah, um, my website is drcamden.com and that's where my blog is and just, you know, all my resources, all the ways to connect with me, to work with me in coaching for purity culture recovery or follow me on Instagram or Facebook. Yeah, that's the best way to connect with me. And I also have a, a quiz on my website. Have you taken the quiz yeah. before? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's called which purity culture myth affects you. So you can go through some questions. I have some statements that are associated with each myth and you can rate your agreement with those statements and then see like, Oh, have I really believed this flip switch myth or, you know, am I still holding on to the gatekeepers myth and thinking that it's my job to gatekeep sexuality. So, um, yeah, so that's a real popular page on my website where people can, can see those myths in, um, in black and white. That's so good. I don't know if you've seen this to be true, but when you said talking about that heart one, mm-hmm. when you were talking about that, and I, I want to kind of like the myth for men that sex is not emotional for men. Sex is mm-hmm. emotional for women, but not for men. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've noticed, but again, I, a lot of the guys I work with, they just, they have that thought. It's like, I can't, I, she's gets emotional, but I'm just not. Or it's emotional for her, but it's not for me. Mm-hmm. And I always, I try to work with them. It's like, actually, men are also emotional human beings. <laughs> and, and 
is something you can learn and something you can engage in and it's something that needs to be a part of, of sex for even for men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, would you agree, have, have you seen that part? Because that's also, I think, part of purity culture as well is for guys, it's just a physical thing. You, you'd have sex at least every 72 hours or whatever, and you always want sex. And it's just a physical thing that you just have to have a release. And so that myth of like men are disconnected from their body. So I see that for purity culture for women, I can see that it would be hard for them to be emotionally engaged because they're in the head of being the gatekeeper mm-hmm. for men emotionally mm-hmm. for that aspect. Have you seen that to be true? Yeah, and I think you used a word disconnected and which is the opposite of integration um, or alignment. So I think anytime there's a disconnect or there's one part of the head heart body triad is out of the line, then we're not, we're not expressing our full full holistic sexuality. We're not three-dimensionally there. If our just our body is there, we're missing out on the other two dimensions that are going to make sex the most intimate, pleasurable, and mutual it can be. So yeah, yeah I think for men and women, um, getting, all, getting all three of those incorporated and integrated into the sexual relationship is going to make it the best it can be. Yeah. And it also reminds me of that saying of women give sex to get love and men give love to get sex which reminds me of the article that Lauren uh, has wrote for my blog. So Lauren um, wrote a, a blog article about sex as affection or sex as an overflow of affection. And um, I'm not sure when this podcast is coming out, but your blog, I think I'm publishing that um, towards the end of the month. Um, the month of May is a sex ed theme on my social media. So it's going to be all about sex ed this month. And so I'm publishing Lauren's blog towards the end of the month because um, it goes along well with this, the sex ed theme of, and this idea that, that men just want to give love to get sex. Yeah. So and she breaks that down and shares some of her personal experience with that. So. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. It, it yeah. might come out around the same time. Yeah. Cool. Okay. <laughs> That'd be cool. Yeah. They go well together. Yeah, yes. definitely. For sure. Well, thank you so much. This has been so good. And like we were talking before we jumped on, this is not a deep dive. It's like a skimming the surface, but kind of opening that that door to the conversation that people want to have and maybe don't always have the, don't feel like it's accessible or yeah, but they have the language for it. So thank you for for offering that gift to people. We're really appreciative. And we know this this will be a valued episode. For Absolutely. Yeah. And we look forward to talking to you again uh, next episode. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for having me and talking with me. I enjoyed our conversation. We did too. While it is a joy to provide our podcast content as a source of life enrichment, please note that information shared is not intended to replace or contradict any professional therapy or medical advice.